This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. This is Alan Jetty, and I'm very pleased to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Kate Mangione from the Department of Physical Therapy at Arcadia University in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Mangione. Thank you, Alan. We're going to talk about the article she and her colleagues published in PTJ. It's entitled, Using Treatment Fidelity Measures to Understand Walking Recovery, a Secondary Analysis from the Community Ambulation Project. Kate, I really enjoyed the paper. Let me summarize it briefly for our listeners, and then we can talk about it. As I said, this was a secondary analysis that described treatment fidelity of a home-based intervention, and they wanted to identify factors associated with treatment fidelity and examine whether components of fidelity were associated with the outcome, which was change in six-minute walk distance among 89 community-dwelling hip fracture individuals who completed standard therapy and were randomized to the active intervention in this trial. It involved the 16 weeks of lower extremity strengthening, function, and endurance training. Analysis of the data showed that regular attendance, frequent endurance training for 20 minutes or more, increases in lower extremity training loads, and exercising on the floor were all associated with improvements in the outcome of six-minute walk distance. Those who exercised on the floor improved by 62 meters more than those who did not get on the floor. So let's start, Kate, by talking about your approach to measuring treatment fidelity, which is quite challenging. You focused on five domains, the study design, training, delivery, receipt, and enactment. Could you briefly describe the difference between delivery, receipt, and enactment? I wanna make sure I understand how those are different. Right. So delivery is probably the piece that's been looked at probably the most. And the question it answers is, was the treatment delivered as it was intended to be? Um, And the focus is really on the person who's providing the intervention. So it's the provider focused. So it's a set of processes and procedures to standardize both the training and implementation of these procedures and checking for protocol adherence throughout. So For instance, in our study, we had robust training sessions. Everyone had to pass with a very high pass rate. We did in-home visits, treatment fidelity visits. We did refresher training, all these things to make sure that the provider did what they were supposed to do. In contrast, receipt shifts the focus from the provider to the patient or the participant. And it's really, again, those processes that allow us to see and improve the the ability of the patient to understand and perform the treatment skills, all right, during the treatment. So for us, it would be, uh, in our study, it would be, did the patient show fatigue during each set of strength training? Did they do the technique correctly where we'd have them uh, perform fast on the concentric phase and slower on the eccentric phase of strength training? Were they feeling winded during endurance training, suggesting they understood intensity? Even the techniques that we showed them for getting down to and rising from the floor, those would all be receipt issues because it's focusing again on the um, participants' abilities. 
And then finally, enactment is really the ability of patients to perform whatever these treatment-related behavioral skills are in relevant real-life settings. And we did not measure enactment, um, but that would be, you know, did they actually get into the community? Did they achieve community ambulation in a real-world sense? Are they getting to church, to the supermarket, you know, visiting friends and families? Hmm. So you see enactment as a treatment fidelity and not an outcome. Well, that is, that's what enactment is. So it's really taking what you learn in a session. So taking, you know, let, let's say it, it's, it's the process. So it, in, be, in the psychology literature, it would be more like, and that's where some of these things came, um, came up. It would be more like, can you actually cope in a stressful situation if that stressful situation is presented to you in a completely different way than you were trained in? So for us, it, it does seem to overlap some more with the outcome, but I think where it was originally intended was in the psychological literature. And in your article, you note that in many trials, there's really limited information related to fidelity of the interventions. This does worry me as a, an editor in the trials that we see in PTJ. And in fact, you cite a recent systematic review around uh, research with older adults with fragility fractures, revealing that only 12% of the trials reported a complete dose of exercise to evaluate treatment fidelity right. is shockingly low. <laughs> so why do you think, given its importance, why do you think fidelity measurement is so low? Right. So, you know, I, I'm pretty sure PTJ recommends that you use the tidier guidelines and the checklist, which is the checklist that really helps us um, re reliably implement interventions. And that was only published in 2014. So the systematic review was published in 2020. So that's not that long a time for some of the information to kind of trickle down through the literature. But I think the bigger thing is that the collecting and analyzing of fidelity data is really labor intensive um, and resource intensive, especially for complex interventions, like the ones that most physical therapists do. They're biobehavioral programs. Um, so the, the multimodal exercise program that we did in CAP, and there are others mentioned in the systematic review, they're really, really complex. So to measure all those things, you need time and you need to have a lot of planning. When I think about how, and I'm not, um, when I think about our kind of our writing team or the, the grant team, the study team, you know, the whole interest is really on the primary analysis. And that's so important. But I think the fidelity piece for physical therapists, if it's an exercise intervention, is extraordinarily compelling. I, I think clinicians want to know what exactly happened and how did it happen. But that not that isn't always the interest of the whole team. <laughs> so in our in our CAP team, we had experts in older adults with medical complexity. We had clinical trial specialists, statisticians. But I think it's really the voice of the physical therapist to educate the other members of the scientific community. And we need to take the, the lead in planning and measuring and reporting what was actually done so we can replicate these useful exercise interventions. But it's, it is very, um, it takes a lot of resources and, and resources are scarce when you're doing trial like this. Well, let's talk about that in the context of your study. Um, given the complexity, did you find a challenge in missing data in your treatment fidelity measures? You know, I think our oversight really um, did its job. We had amazingly complete logbooks. All right. And so each each and every session, the therapist would complete a 
four page um, logbook uh, with lots of check marks and things like that. And I would review those those logbooks yearly and then uh, uh, actually biannually. Um, so we would have missing visits, but we didn't have missing data per se. Now where the labor piece came in is that we then had to take all of that information and then again, use resources to have people, even though those weren't, let's say the study data, these were just fidelity data. They went into a different data system and we had to have someone enter all of that information, which was really, really time consuming. Yeah. In the part of your a study where you were looking at factors related to degree of fidelity, you found that BMI and six minute walk distance at baseline were both associated with treatment fidelity, delivery and receipt. And if I remember correctly, women also showed a positive association with one component of your fidelity measures. Given those associations, what, what do you see as the implications for future research in this area? I don't think gender actually had a large influence on delivery or receipt. We looked at associations with so many background variables, age, gender, education, diseases, resilience, pain, uh, nutrition, cognition, all these kinds of things. Um, and it's probably, and none of those showed up, interestingly, as, as influencing treatment fidelity. Um, so there are other uh, likely unmeasured personality variables, perhaps social support, therapeutic alliance, something else that explains fidelity, but I don't think it's gender. Um, I, we based our modeling off of the literature that describes participation in exercise or physical activity. And perhaps short-term exercise programs like ours, you know, being only 16 weeks, perhaps the predictors are different than those for for lifelong participation in exercise. I just don't know. So the health and function measures of BMI and walking distance were much stronger predictor variables in our research than really described in the exercise participation, long-term participation research. Um, as a take-home message, I think for clinicians, I think it's really important that we should think that both men and women should really be approached similarly, that they can perform the exercises as designed. We shouldn't think, ah, men aren't going to do it as they're supposed to, or only women follow rules. That's not what we found at all. In the community ambulation project, you found no statistically significant differences between those folks randomized to your um, experimental um, intervention as compared to the um, comparison uh, group. To what degree do you know if treatment fidelity was a factor associated with this result? Right, so how confident am I? So it's really, you know, we only looked at fidelity in one arm of the trial, which is always a problem with secondary analysis or not with this, with our particular design. But I would say that the data for, that we presented in table two suggested that we did, I'm going to put air quotes here, okay with fidelity. So we had, you know, about 70% adherence overall. Um, most of the sessions of almost 80% were 20 minutes. They improved load. Um, intensity for, um, aerobic training or endurance training was pretty low. It was only about 35% and about 70% of the participants exercised on the floor. So as a whole, I'm going to say we didn't knock it out of the park despite all of the rigorous oversight. All right. It wasn't, these weren't all above 85%, but we really, again, we looked at each and every one of these variables. Having said that, we did find that if you attended more, if you did have greater progressions in your load and you exercised on the floor, right, performing the intervention as intended, you did see 
greater increases in walking distance. But it's hard. It's really hard for me to come down one way or the other and say that these fidelity factors were more or less influential than baseline health and function of our participants. We, we can't ignore that. We just finished, a, we just had a published in a, in a different journal about baseline frailty, which was a super strong predictor, really strong for ambulation distance. So we can't ignore that baseline state of our participants, how they come to us. It is in such an important prognostic indicator. So I think if we could have had slightly stronger results from this fidelity, um, we probably could have seen more improvement in the push group. Um, but we didn't. Um, but for clinicians, I think, again, the important take home message is that patients who can do more seem to achieve higher goals. So I, I don't I don't think I really answered your question, Alan, um, but it's it's hard because there's it's there's no simple fix when you're talking about a group of people like this. Yeah, but you, you do make a very strong case that fidelity to the intervention is really important. Yep. And it's challenging to get the kind of fidelity that you would like. Given that importance, have you given some thought to how future research can do an even better job of increasing treatment fidelity? You guys did quite well, but obviously, as you've pointed out, there's room for improvement. Absolutely. Um, I have to, you know, to me, improving fidelity means involving or engaging the patients to their absolute fullest. You have to find something that's meaningful to that patient and then make that explicit connection between the exercise and them being able to do the meaningful activity that they need to do. Um, I think educating our patients and some therapists, our, our therapists were well educated in this, but that intensity matters, right? Higher intensity exercise in both strength and endurance is absolutely well established as being more effective in achieving greater functional outcomes. And that's kind of the biology piece of this biobehavioral intervention that we talk about. But the behavioral component, again, is just as important. Um, we have to use motivational strategies, positive feedback. Even and I, and I don't play this off lightly, but showing that you truly care and you're not just there marking time, in my opinion, is really how to get patients to do the kind of exercise, that intensive exercise that is required to improve function. And ha having said all that, I have to, you know, there are still people we can't, they have some burdens. They could be caregiving burdens, managing metal, complex medical needs. It could be fear, other family issues. Those are strong deterrents to doing this kind of work. And not every patient can be engaged to the fullest. So I, I recognize it, but I really think we have to approach it from the, the biology of it and from the behavior side of it. You mentioned the behavior, and that leads me to my final question having to do with your outcome measure. I understand that your primary outcome was the six-minute walk distance, and I get that. Um, and I understand why you would focus on that. Did you, as a secondary outcome, look at whether or not the uh, functional behavior of your subjects actually changed in real life? No. Short answer is no, we didn't, and I wish we did. Um, and <sighs> to, you can't go back anymore. Um, it would have been great if we would have had some actual mobility measures. We, we used the Yale um, activity score, which is is adequate at best. Um, we didn't have funds for actigraphy, which we could have possibly used, or maybe something like the life uh, space scale out of Birmingham. Each of these has a limitation. But, you know, it would be a great conversation to have, Alan, is really talking about 
participation measures in older adults, if we define participation as in the ICF model, I just don't think it's well described in the geriatric or gerontological literature. What is participation for an older adult? Because um, it is, that, that's what we kind of strive for, but you know, walking 300 meters versus 297 meters is not participation. So I, I would really, we, we kind of skirt around the issue of participation, but I really don't think we have great measures for it, at least to my knowledge. You know, you could have looked at some of the patient reported outcome measures, such as the late life function and disability measure that does have a participation component. And that was designed specifically for older adults. Now, obviously I'm biased because I happen to be the guy who developed that instrument. <laughs> but that, there, are, there are approaches like that out there that can measure participation in older adults. And I do wish we would have, I, you know, we had the Yale and we had the SF36. And I don't feel that either of them really captured what it is that we wanted to capture. Sure. Um, and when you have a dichotomous threshold like we did, either getting 300 meters or not getting 300 meters, you miss the nuances of, I remember one woman who walked 297 meters and right. she did great and she was a treatment failure. Right. So we, we missed a lot of nuances with that, but um, still in all, I, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I, this is, if I had to do it again, I would like to choose some different measures, that's for sure. Well, you can't do everything in one study and you did a nope. And so congratulations on a really excellent study. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you for publishing this secondary analysis in PPJ. I think it's important work and I would urge our listeners to take a look at it. And, and Kate, thank you for taking the time today to talk about it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is an APTA podcast.